0: Welcome to Politics Is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong Whaley, and I'm Miles Coleman. Miles, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us this week. You have a new piece out in the Crystal Ball that takes um, that gives us an overview of the relationship between presidential and Senate results in recent elections. I wonder if you can just kind of give us a brief overview of what you have found, and then we'll dig into some of the details.
1: Yeah. So sort of the genesis of this was it was it must have been last week where we put out our um, initial Senate ratings looking forward to 2020 and um, And we did something a little unusual. It's very rare that forecasters, you know, not just us, other guys as well, um, that will start off a senator as like a legit underdog. Uh, you know, but but that's what we did uh, in the case of West Virginia with Joe Manchin. You know, he hasn't you know said he's if he's going to run again. Uh, I think we're getting sort sort of mixed signals. Um, but you know, we had his race as leans Republican, um, and you know, it, it's it's a. Uh, it's always funny seeing what some of our fans on Twitter say, uh, right? Yeah, know, you know, we thought we were going, you know, sort of out on a limb by put, putting it at Leans Republican. Uh, we had some people, oh, I well, know, it should be likely or safe. You should go even further. Uh, <laughs> but we think for now, that's pretty good. Uh, but point being, uh, shortly after we put out that article, I was talking with Kyle, I'm like, you know, OK, what, you know. You know, if Manchin were to win re-election, you know, what would that take? You know, our operating assumption, and I think it's a good one, uh, is that Trump or whoever the Republican nominee is, uh, is going to carry the state of West Virginia by, you know, 35, 40 points. Um, and you know, so that's just a lot to overcome. So we started looking at, OK, you know, how – you know, what would be the precedent for that, if there is any, of uh, running that far ahead of the presidential ticket – Uh, And long story short, yeah, there are uh, uh, there have been some in recent ish history since 2000, uh, but not so much since 2016.
0: So one of the things that you specifically measured were the outcomes in Senate races um, and how they have increasingly become aligned with uh, the presidential vote. And you, you found um, in looking at the elections from 2000 to 2020 that Senate candidates frequently performed better um, a decade or two ago, often by 40 points or more um, in 2000, 2004, 2008, and 2012. What was happening in those years that explains the Senate candidates doing better than presidents in their states?
1: Going back to 2000 and really since 2012 or until uh 2012, you know, one of the things I looked at was okay, you yeah, know, let's say, um, you know, basically using Tim Kaine as an example for Virginia, uh, just to give the uh, listeners a bit of an idea what I'm talking again about here. When Tim Kaine was last up in a presidential year, it was 2012. Um, Obama carried the state of Virginia by four points. Tim Kaine won by six points. So he did two points better than Obama or, or at least uh, he did two points better than the top of his presidential ticket. So that's sort of what we're measuring here. You know, but at the same time, go one state next door. Uh, and actually, one of the biggest recent over performers was actually Joe Manchin that year in 2012. Uh, and something I mentioned is that a lot of these races, uh, you know, incumbency tended to count for more, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, now it's more whether you have a D or an R behind your name. Um and something I stress is, you know, each of those races that I profiled in this piece, you no, know, they were all sort of their you know, they every race was a different animal, had different characteristics. Uh in the case of Manchin in 2012, he actually ran, you know, 52 points or something like that ahead of Obama's margin in Westford, Virginia, which is one of the biggest recent overperformances, and you know, part of that was um you know in 2010 he won a special election that year. Uh the guy who ran against him in 2010 tried for a rematch, you know, well guess what he you know he was already seen as a loser, right? After yeah you know, after losing the uh, 2010 election. So, uh Manchin was considered pretty safe, but meanwhile at the top of the ticket I mean, I still remember in 2012, looking at the election results that night, you know, obviously I didn't expect Obama to carry the state of West Virginia, but I remember sort of like jumping back in my chair when I looked at the interactive map of the New York Times where they had West Virginia and every county was red. Uh, I'm like, wow, that was, was, uh, you know, that's when that state really started marching rightward. And you know, over you know, even that year, West Virginia had a lot of Democrats. It would elect to statewide office that even as Romney did very well there, you know. But after two, three more cycles of that, with you know, with West Virginia being so overwhelmingly red at the top of the ticket, uh, that's filtered down. Every uh, every statewide officeholder, except for Mansion, is Republican. There, the Republicans have huge majorities um in the legislature uh so you know i think it goes back to you know incumbency used to matter more uh you know the performance that Manchin gave in 2012 where he won you know where he ran 40 points ahead of the a ticket now, that would be more common back a few decades ago but now it's 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 uh Uh, it's more rare. One of the uh, metrics I looked at is in each presidential year going from 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016, and 2026 years, um, I looked at the number of senators who ran double digits ahead of their presidential nominee. 2000 and 2004 um, you, it, it, it was about 70 percent. Almost the expectation was if you're a senator, you're, you're going to do much better than your presidential non- nominee. Uh, in in the, the Obama era, um, it was more like 50 percent uh, in 2008 and 2012. 2016 fell down to about 37 percent, and by 2020, it was less than
0: 10. Well, I I want to kind of pick up and and ask you a little bit more. You've clearly identified that 2012, the Obama era, is a turning point for split-ticket voting. Um, and between 2016 and 2020, um, only one state, Maine, voted for presidential and Senate candidates of opposite parties what really explains the decline after 2012
1: our politics these days are just more polarized and you know there's just becoming less difference you know yeah there's becoming less differences between the parties of every individual state you know you know back uh Back a few decades ago, there you know used to be a diff a big difference between a Virginia Democrat and a national damn Democrat. You know, uh, same thing. You know, one one of the things I talked up, about is in two thousand, a lot of overperformers on 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 the Republican side uh, were these moderates up in New England, like Olympia Snow and Lincoln Chafee. Uh, they're you know out of office now, and that's. Uh, Those states are more democratic, so it's it's uh, you know we've been in the process of this uh, of this kind of sort along more ideological lines, and you know it's just uh, every cycle it seems to be be um, seems to be getting more and more intense. I blame social media. You know, it seems like campaigns these days are just more national around Christmas time. You know, of course, I'm based in Virginia. You know, I like to get uh, uh, emails from, you know, campaigns around the country. So, you know, maybe I follow this more than some other people. But I mean, if I'm a donor in some other state, um, I check my inbox around Christmas time. Uh, and John Fetterman is trying to sell me his Christmas socks you know <laughs> so it's just, we're we're more linked into uh, other campaigns around the, a country so I think that local uh, edge just isn't there as much anymore so I think that's uh, uh just the nationalization I think has has really played a big part
0: yeah you know we're seeing that up here and in- Along a number of metrics, I think the nationalization um, of campaigns, the way we consume news, um, including through social media, but the nationalization of the news lets us see and and pay attention to campaigns that are happening across the country. And you know, I think looking, for example, at um, you know, I was doing some digging on threats to election workers. And a lot of the threats actually emanate from one state towards an election worker in another state, um, which is really interesting, right? And that sort of is another example of just how we're seeing the way in which campaigns have been nationalized. Um, and then finally, with gridlock in Washington, you know, more. Outside groups are spending money in state and local races that are also contributing to the nationalization of the campaigns and in. in Local politics, local and state politics. Yeah, another point that I wanted to draw out that you found was um, about the commonality among overperformers, um, and y- you found that basically established incumbent senators um, who did who overperformed tended to face weak, underfunded opponents. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that. And, you know, what does that mean in terms of candidate quality and, you know, the parties really thinking about who is not who and how they nominate candidates?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we talked about like a lot last year of how the, uh, About how a lot of the uh, Republican candidates and a lot of the key Senate races were just bad. Uh, You know, that can apply to non competitive races as well. Uh, One of the, um, there are two sort of trends that took a, or there are two main trends that took away from that. You know, one is definitely the, uh, uh, one of the big trends is that a lot of the overperformers were from small states. Uh, I'll come back to your point about candidates in a minute, but I'll make this point first. Uh, uh, something like 27 of the so basically I went through every year 2000 to 2020 every presidential year, I picked out the top three performers in each from each side. Uh, so it 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 is 36 races overall. Most of the top over performers throughout the years have been from small states. Uh, and, and I think part of that is, you know, well, if you're from a small state, you know, it's more likely uh, you're going to have a personal relationship with your senator. You're going to get more individual attention. So I think that helps. Uh, but one, one of the exceptions that came from a larger state, and this is where I think candidate quality uh, played into to, to it, um, one of... Actually, the the biggest uh, non incumbent o- 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 overperformer throughout that whole time span uh, was in two thousand four in Illinois, uh, and that was the race that Obama won. Um, he had a uh, very uh, controversial Republican opponent, a guy named Alan Keyes. Um, he had run, I think, in Maryland before that. He, I think he's maybe run for a president a few times. So you know basically a bad candidate before the idea of bad candidates really came to the you know common uh, four, I guess uh, and Obama ran something like 34 per points ahead of John Kerry. Um, so you know I think Obama would have won anyway, but that yes you know, that certainly padded his margin.
0: You also found that the trend continued in 2020. 2020- to with democrats not winning a single seat in any of the trump won states um uh you know they did flip a biden state in pennsylvania which was pennsylvania um uh and Johnson became the only exception um uh as the only Republican to win a Biden state in twenty in twenty twenty-two. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the trends might mean for the 2024 Senate elections.
1: Yes, so it's it's uh um, uh not to put any spoilers out there, but when we put out our post-election book at the Center for Politics in probably a few months, uh Uh, I hear there's going to be a very good chapter on Senate races. So that's.
0: Which I happened to edit this morning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's just a word on the the, uh, street. Uh, But it's, it's, uh, that's right. So it is. And I would say about that Ron Johnson result very quickly uh, is, you know, sometimes in these Senate races, uh, there's some Monday morning quarterbacking that goes on. Uh, In the case of Ron Johnson, you know, most polls had him up by three or four points. He only won by one point. So I think a lot of Democrats are like, OK, you know, we had a good year. Uh, but, you know, if we just gave a little more to that Wisconsin race, you know, would we have beat Ron Johnson? Um, so anyway, uh, but yeah, I mean, if this trend continues, it's it's um, uh, it's going to be tough for Democrats in 2024. Uh, you know, they have. uh You know they have, they are going to be defending seats in three Trump one states: West Virginia, Montana, and Ohio. Uh, I sort of alluded to this, but like, let's say if John Tester on, it looks like Senator Brown in Ohio. You know he seems pretty undaunted about the uh, uh, about some of the trends in Ohio. But uh, I think one thing helping say John Tester is supposed to Sherrod Brown is Montana is a smaller state. Uh, many of the over-perform- uh I think there was at least one case uh, where Montana uh, was the state that had the uh, – uh, one of the biggest overperformances in 08. Uh, Max Baucus, who he served with, uh, ran like 40 points ahead of Obama. Um, so, I think Tester, at least, you know, we both, you know, we, we see both Montana and, and Ohio as toss ups. Uh, but I think that's something that could help Tester maybe a little bit. Um, but, and that's not even to get into the very marginal blue states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, states like that. That, you know, I think there's going to be a very interesting situation in Arizona. Uh, we'll have to see what Senator Sinema ends up doing. Uh, but it's – it's uh, the outcome in most of these races is that it's going to be yoked to uh, whatever the presidential outcome, outcome is. Um, one good, good example of that that I sort of point to uh, when reporters ask me about, about this uh, is Gary Peters, who uh, – you know, is was the chair of the DSCC last year. He was going to be the chair of bad, bad again. Uh, Peters in 2014, you know, really sort it. His race was sort of a bright spot for Democrats because 2014 was a very rough year for them. They lost, you know, nine seats in the Senate. They lost the whole chamber, but Peters had, you know, a really bad opponent uh and he and he won by you know 13 14 points in a you know white blue state like michigan uh well when he was up in 2020 6 years later uh joe biden only carried the state of michigan by two three points uh that's about the same margin that peters got you know one one of the points um uh, I actually wanted to put this in my chapter, but you know, I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to drag on too long, as some of our readers may appreciate. Uh, but I talked about one one of the weird trends in 2020 2022, um was you had several veteran senators: uh, Chuck Grassley, Chuck Schumer, uh, John Hoven in North Dakota, um, and I didn't mention him in this article, but another one who kind of fits that bill is Ron Wyden in Oregon. Uh, These were veteran members who could almost always count uh, on big crossover voting. Uh, They all in 2022, they all got about the same 56% of the vote, which is, you know, okay, but it's not... I mean, in Chuck Schumer's case, I mean, in 2016, when he was last up, he got over 70. You know, he fell down to like 56 in 2022. You know, as I said, every state is its own kind of different animal. Uh, the New York Democrats had a, had a very hard time last year. I think that kind of bled into Chuck Schumer's result re- uh, in the case of John Hoven. Uh, he was elected in North Dakota which is you know a 60 65% trump state uh, and i think in 2010 and 20, 2016 he he was close to 80% uh, he fell down to 56% last year part of that was he had a uh uh right wing third party candidate who took some votes Uh, but basically point being from all those examples is some candidates are electoral juggernauts until they aren't. Uh, Just to give you one more example from, you know, kind kind of keeping it local, uh, I mentioned Obama turning out or uh, uh, turning in a very good performance for a non-incumbent in 04. Uh, Someone who would also be in that category uh, was Mark Warner. He he left office as a very popular governor of Virginia. Uh, in 2008, he, he wins an open seat by, you know, a two to one margin or something like that. Uh, and in 2014, he barely hangs on. So, right. <laughs>
0: I would really love to see how this period of 2000 to 2020 might compare to other periods in history. Um I think Kyle did a
1: piece, maybe a few uh, within the past month or so, um, saying that we're almost like in another Gilded Age electorally. You know, basically this would be the stretch from roughly you know the 1870s to around uh, that turn of the century, where it was just an era of very closely fought presidential elections. Like you know, we really haven't had like a legit landslide election. Uh, at least at the presidential level in a while. You know, Obama, yeah, he did very well in 08, but he got 53% of the uh, popular vote. Okay, that's good, but it's not that, that type of result that a uh, Reagan or LBJ would, would uh, get. One, one of the things I emphasize to people uh, is, you know, you have to embrace ins- uncertainty. You can't predict these elections with precise accuracy, even over a few cycles. I mean, if you told me in 2010 for example you you had college educated white voters going you know, 60 40 Republican a decade later that they'd be you know, a democratic leaning block you know some of these things can happen over time but Uh, You know, I think we may be in this sort of holding period for a while. I'm not really rooting for this per se, but, you know, sometimes I think is, you know, okay, you know, we're really going to need like a catastrophic depression level event for enough people of one party to turn over you know, and give the other side a chance.
0: Well, Miles, thank you so much for joining us and discussing the decline of Senate ticket splitting, as well as why Senate candidates have overperformed, but how that trend has changed in the last two decades. Listeners, you can read more on the crystal ball, the shocking decline of Senate ticket splitting. The link is in the episode notes.
1: All right, thank you, Kerry. And one, uh, one thing that I'll say at the kind of leave on uh, is as you know, uh, at the Center for Politics, we like to make good use of our interns who work with us. Uh, our two interns, Victorian and Evelyn, uh, they did a good job of compiling the data that was behind this. So uh, I wanted to give them a little bit of credit as well.
0: Hi podcast listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics Is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. Please support us by rating and subscribing to Politics Is Everything wherever you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at center4politics. Until next time.